Hello again. This is Alan Lightman. Our three-part public TV series, Searching Our Quest for Meaning in the Age of Science, continues premiering on PBS stations nationwide and remains accessible on pbs.org through May 2023. After that, many stations will offer the series to members in their passport collection. My on-camera conversations for searching captured some fascinating material from a diverse cast of characters, Nobel laureates, MacArthur geniuses, leading researchers in biology, neuroscience, physics, and astronomy, plus philosophers, ethicists, a rabbi, the Dalai Lama, and a humanoid robot. These podcasts share more of that material than we could include in the broadcast series. And I'm happy to acknowledge that both the series and these podcasts are made possible by a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. This conversation is with the distinguished Italian historian of science, Dr. Paolo Galluzzi. He's now president emeritus of the Museo Galileo in Florence, where he was its director for many years. As you might expect, He's a specialist on the life and discoveries of Galileo and how Galileo's work was a true milestone in human thought. Of course, Copernicus, Galileo, Newton, and Einstein are well-known figures in science. What my producers and I found especially exciting about my conversation with Dr. Galuzzi was how he revealed aspects of Galileo's work with a telescope that were fresh and novel. The current director of the museum, Dr. Roberto Ferrari, and his staff generously welcomed us to the museum for two long days of filming, and even entrusted me with the loan of a beautiful replica of one of Galileo's original telescopes, and for that we sincerely thank them all. I sat down with Dr. Galuzzi in the wonderful old library of the Museo, with a facsimile of Galileo's Starry Messenger book in front of us and that replica telescope. Hi, Paolo. It's, How are you? It's a privilege to, to meet you. My pleasure. Talk to you about Galileo. One, one thing I've always wondered is, why was Galileo the first person to point the telescope at the sky? Quite a complex question. Uh, the telescope, as everybody knows, was... Uh, entering the scene in 1608, and only one year later, Galileo uh, could see the first one of those instruments built into the Dutch countries. And uh, it was the first one, apparently, as far as we know from records, to have the idea that was not simply a military instrument that could see approaching the enemy troops before that they saw you, but was the first one to think that might have been a fundamentally crucial role in understanding the structure of the universe. And, and for that reason, he pointed that to the sky. Nicholas Copernicus was a Polish mathematician and astronomer who preceded Galileo by almost two generations. Copernicus argued that the Earth revolved around the sun and that the sun, not the Earth, was the center of the solar system. That view contradicted the conventional notion of the Earth and the heavens dating back to Aristotle and the ancient Greeks. That belief had also become a central doctrine of the Catholic Church. Paolo, in fact, believes that one reason Galileo turned his new and improved version of the Dutch spyglass to the heavens was in search of evidence to support Copernicus's theory. I believe that he was tempted to do this kind of operation by the fact that he was a follower of Copernicus and the Copernican concept of the universe. And that he immediate, immediately imagined that the new tool might have been of help to prove the right of the Copernican system. That is, in my opinion, the reason why he pointed as first person the telescope to the heavens, to the sky. Uh my understanding is that uh, the telescope um, used by Galileo was really the, the one of the very first scientific instruments that was, was used to extend the human sense perception. Yes, it is. 
Uh, you, you might think that before the telescope lenses were in use, possibly from antiquity, and of course you can use a lens to enlarge a, a manuscript writing or something like that, but it's quite different the telescope. The combination of the two lenses allowed magnification to a degree, and all, especially to distant objects like the bodies, celestial bodies. So he was certainly the first to, to spot uh, what is going on in, in the vaulted uh, scene uh, using a, an optical instrument. So this is quite a turn in the history of science because your, your senses that are limited in the scope of, of exploring the universe uh, found finally a tool that could enlarge and improve enormously their power. Were, were there people, uh, especially in the church, who objected to the use of the telescope to extend the human senses? I mean, they, you could argue uh, that, uh, that God did not intend us to have those kinds of powers or, or he would have given us those powers. Yes, uh, at the beginning, that was not so much a point on which the church focused. Uh, later on, it came up. But at the beginning, uh, also because Galileo was very clever, was a bright guy, and he was, of course, fully understand, understanding the revolutionary scope of his discoveries and what he saw in the sky. And so he was defending himself from, he, he imagined that the church might have bet might have reacted negatively. So he uh, presented the discoveries as a proof of the magnificent work of the creation. The fact that finally you discover an harmony in the spheres, or the celestial spheres, that were confirmation of the uh, superior quality of the act of creation. So he was quite a clever guy. He knew that the world he was living in and he understood perfectly what might have happened. <laughs> and, and yet, even though he was demonstrating the superior quality of the heavens, he found craters on the moon and other imperfections of the heavenly body. Um, I would think that that did not go over very no, well. Sure, it's, it's true. But if, if you consider that the Holy Scriptures are not saying anything about the crystal nature of the spheres. This is rather the Aristotelian theory of the Ptolemy vision. It's not anything to do with religion. The, the delicate point was the centrality of the sun and, and the, re uh, the rest of the sun at the center of the universe. The other phenomena that he was discovering, like the uneven surface of the moon, were not conflicting directly with the Holy Scriptures, and so they might have passed without problems uh, in front of the church, of the Catholic Church. Only two of Galileo's telescopes, made by his own hand, remain safely tucked away in display cases at the museo and not allowed out. But in the old library, we were able to inspect a perfect telescope replica and page through a facsimile of Galileo's Sidereus Nuncius, or Starry Messenger, in which he reported his observations of the moon and stars and his discovery of the moons of Jupiter. But as you'll hear, Paolo believes Galileo's hand-drawn images of the moon and constellations were even more important than the words. So um, we're here with Galileo's original instruments. Um, you've got an original copy of the Sidereus Nuncius, his, his great book. Why do you think that uh, the starry messenger, the Sidereus Nuncius, was not, or today is not given the same uh, respect and importance as, say, Darwin's Origin of the Species sure. or uh, Newton's Principia? Well, the Sidereus Nuncius is, is, uh, is a milestone, in, in, nobody can discuss that. I mean, 1610 is a, is a milestone in the history of the development of human understanding of nature. But it was conceived by Leonardo intentionally, for even for practical reason, as I will explain in a minute, as a neutral report of observations. It didn't draw any conclusion from those observations. It didn't formulate any theory grounded uh, ground on these observations. 
was really something new in scientific literature. There is nothing similar before, I think. A report of observation with no, for general audience at least, understanding of their overall meaning in theoretical terms. Mm -hmm. And obviously, this is so neutral that you can read that and even maybe not understanding that is changing radically what was believed before. <laughs> and I believe this is the reason why the Principia of Newton, starting with uh, axiomata, seuleges motum, axiomata, or laws of motion, and declaring from the very beginning the uh, intellectual scope of this work, which is uh, full of demos mathematical demonstrations and theorema, made these works uh, very easy to understand as milestones. The Siderius has a different organization. It's just a kind of a report of experiments. Galileo, of course, was already aware that these uh, experiments, these observations, were uh, implying a different conception of the system of the world. But he didn't declare that. And I think he did that intentionally. Moreover, uh, the Siderius Nuncius has been written in less than two weeks. <laughs> and uh, we are scholars and we know that writing a book in two weeks is quite a challenge, especially a crucial book <laughs> like this one. And this was, of course, under the pressure of the fear of being anticipated by others who might have built a, such a, a powerful telescope, as powerful as the one that he had in his hands, and might have discovered the same things or more things than he could. So he had to be as fast as possible in spreading the news. Nunchos means news. <laughs> mm -hmm. Spreading the news, in, in breaking news, in fact. And, and so he wrote a quick as possible. And this might have been, of course, another reason for not building an overall theoretical conception of the implications of those observations, li limiting himself just to report what he saw. It sounds like Google and Apple rushing new products to market. New products, uh, breaking news. During our conversation, Paolo and I were able to page through the copy of Starry Messenger as he told the little-known story of Galileo's rush to write and publish his breaking news about the heavens, all in just a few hectic weeks. Um, so uh, it looks like this is a, a copy or a facsimile of, of the book. Uh, it's a perfect facsimile. It's a perfect so, facsimile. You know, even in size and in also in any detail, yeah? Uh, uh, and here you, you see, of course, the, what made the most impression, the portraits of the moon that, he was, that he, Galileo observed through the lenses of the telescope. This moon is totally different from traditional image. This is a revolutionary image. Mm. It's like to show a person in a picture and then you reverse the picture and you see a different person. It's something similar to that. Uh, what to make it different? This, the moon was considered as a perfect sphere of crystal. Of course, everybody, even today, looking at the full moon can see that our spots, our images are something that, and there's been a large literature explaining why was notwithstanding that everybody believed that was a perfect crystal sphere that was showing this kind of phenomena. But uh, the explanation were multiple. Uh, people say that these were a consequence of the refraction of the air or of the atmosphere. Others say that this was the crystal was crystal, but not of the same thickness. So being different thickness, the light would have been reflected in different way, creating this kind of dark spots. But nobody would have ever arrived at imagining that there were valleys and moons mm -hmm. and seas on, on mm -hmm. the moon. And this is something that was struck. I, I, I imagine the first readers of the Siderius were struck much more from the few images than by the descriptions that he was giving or what he observed. Yes, I've always, uh, I mean, I've, I've read this uh, several times. I am also have been impressed by the, the very straightforward nature of the discussion, uh, sort of like, as you say, a report. And of course, the, the pictures yes. are, are amazing. Can you say a little bit more about why this book was so 
revolutionary? How did it uh, change our understanding of the world? Well, uh, Galileo lived in a world in which the people might have been able or might be interested in reading such a book where in the number of the hundreds, not in the millions. <laughs> and, and, but this book was uh, even a milestone in the immediate reaction that he created in, in overall audience. Uh, the day before that the book was printed, it was printed on May 13, 1610. We know exact the day exactly in which it, the, the book was printed, was issued. Uh, the day before, the uh, ambassador of the King of England in Venice, this was printed in Venice, the Siderius Nonchus was printed in Venice, uh, announced the king in a letter that this book was coming out and would have been changing the idea that we had of before of the universe. And he said something like that, I almost quote literally, this man either will become extremely famous or will become uh, ridiculous <laughs> because he didn't took part. He didn't say, okay, this is new. was uncertain if this was true or not. The day before the publishing, this was already crossing the, the channel and going to, <laughs> to London. But immediately after, it, the news spread to France, to Germany, to China, to India. All the known global world was in quickly. I mean, China took two years, but because two years of trip to go mm -hmm. to China, but was so quick that even that was no, nothing similar before of that. Why was so revolutionary? So, Paolo, why do you think that Galileo's discovery was so revolutionary? Well, it was changing something that uh, for, for millennia were believed out of dispute. That is that it hurt is moving uh, with two different motions. For Copernicus, they were three, but for Galileo, were only two, uh, with an enormous speed while the sun, which was supposed before to move, was still. This is something that could not uh, to touch the imagination of every person, even the most common person, those that had no literature, no school, nothing. And, and this was done in a very discreet way because he was not drawing this conclusion in this booklet. He was avoiding, except for expert readers who have found a place in which was intuitive that he was thinking of Copernicus and the Copernican system. But for general audience, it was never found a statement that this was reversing the image of the universe. But the, to think of the moon, I mean, the moon is the most understandable, easy to, to see, a familiar, imaginative bodies in the sky for human people. And, and imagine that the, the moon was totally different from what poets uh, scientists, uh, uh, literary man had described before was something that was really breaking news, was something that was uh, creating a serious... If the moon is so similar, just to give you an example, so similar to the earth, there are lunatics there, there are people living in the moon, why not? Why, what mm. is the moon doing there if there is no scope uh, to be in an yeah. ornament for right. the hurt, but it's being so similar, then maybe there are people like us living there. This is just one of the implications that imagination of people might have thought of immediately after this reading, of simply hearing the news, hearing mm. of the news contained in this book. Just, just as an ordinary person, and I'm trying to put myself back, at, you know, several hundred years ago, which of course is impossible to do. Sure. Uh, being told that the earth moves when all of my senses tell me that it's not moving, why would I accept that, that idea? That has been a very hard point to be, to be fought, to be dis discussed and overcome by Galileo. The idea that nobody feels any sense of motion being on the earth. And this has been the main argument, physical arguments against the Copernican system mm. from the very beginning. Uh, so uh, the, uh, what is not so well known is that while, Leonardo, while Galileo was 
pointing the was focusing with the lenses on on or spotting the celestial bodies he was also trying to revise the conception of motion that came from tradition the aristotelian conception of motion because the idea that the earth is moving and we do not perceive any sense of motion mm -hmm. was unacceptable in the in the physics in the dynamics of Aristotle. That was the official doctrine uh, in universities and in the learned world. So the, uh, from, from before discovering the novelties in the heavens, Galileo started to revise the theory of motion of Aristotle to find a way of reconceptualize this doctrine in order to make acceptable that you can move and do not perceive any sense of motion. This is a fight, double fight that he's doing, showing the structure with your eyes and creating the intellectual tools to mm. make acceptable those novelties to you. It seems to me that, that if you look at the history of science, that one of the, the major accomplishments of science is, is to teach us that there is a, a, a hidden world or a world that's not apparent to the sensory perceptions. I mean, we've, we've learned sure. uh, in the last couple of hundred years that there are uh, frequencies of light that we can't see. Sure. Uh, that we, we've learned uh, that our, our human sense organs are, are very, very limited. And we really, and then of course you've got quantum physics, which is even more sure. extreme. Um, in a way that has made us uh, do you think that that's made us bigger or smaller uh, in, our, in our sense of ourselves and sort of our uh, self-identity uh, as, as beings in the, in the cosmos? Is, has it made us bigger or smaller to realize that, that our sense organs are, are picking up only a tiny sliver of reality. Yeah, sure. It is. Uh, I, I tried to answer as Galileo would have answered to your question, Alan. Uh, I think he would say, I feel much minor because I have enlarged enormously the dimension of the universe, much more than Copernicus, who had already enlarged a lot the universe. And I understand perfectly that I am just nothing in front of the, of the overall matter around me and the space who surrounds me. But at the same time, I feel enormous big because I understand how things are. Mm -hmm. I am the only human uh, being, uh, the, the only natural uh, creature who is able to figure out my minority. But the minority understanding of my minor role is a great thing. So I feel great for that reason. I think Galileo would have answered that way. So you feel both smaller in some ways yeah, and larger, larger in, in other ways. <laughs> and and uh, we now have seen uh, objects, galaxies, uh, that are 13.4 billion. <laughs> billion, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, the light has been traveling for 13.4 billion years. Unbelievable, and yeah. We, we think the whole universe is only 13.8 billion years old. unbelievable. This is something that Galileo would not have accepted, by the way. I think it was too much. Yeah. <laughs> it was working that way, but that would have been too much for him. <laughs> but uh, getting back to your point that you, you feel larger in some ways because sure, uh, you're able to, you know, understand so much with, you know, just three pounds sure, of sure. brain in your head. Um, uh, that really is, uh, it's pretty amazing that, in, in my view, that we have on our one little planet and one on the outskirts of, of uh, not even the center of sure, the solar system, sure. as Galileo shown, um, on the edge of a galaxy, one of billions of galaxies sure. we've been able to understand a lot about how the universe began and to see almost to the edges of the universe sure um, it's, it's really something amazing but of course if we put in the condition in which uh, galileo uh touched the eye from the telescope and started to think about what he saw what was yeah. the meaning of what he saw 
I think he would have shared the same kind of impression that we have today, thinking of the big whole distance in time, mm. um, the distance in galaxy, in light, uh, speed, and things like that. Because for him, the enlargement of the world was enormous. And he could see the, the so-called fixed stars, and it's so, so many more than the one that had been uh, yes. recorded by earlier astronomer. And he could see Orion and see that there were not seven stars, but there were millions mm. of stars yes. in Orion. And he could see the Milky Way, and, yes. he, and he understand that it was an enormous number of celestial bodies. Yes. So he, I think he would have lived the same impression that we have today when we think of the distance of the big hole. Mm -hmm. or, or, the, mm -hmm. or the distance in light speed of the galaxies yeah. at, at the periphery of what we know, not the periphery of the universe, of course. Yeah. Well, tell me a little bit more about yeah. this book. And um, you mentioned earlier that it was written in 20 days and written hastily. Are, are there any uh, signs when you look at the book uh, that this book, Darius Nuncius, was, was uh, written in just two weeks. Are there any signs of that haste in the book? There is a uh, lots of signs uh, uh, because uh, this book was a uh, really, really mess. I mean, in the sense that he had to write pieces, to take to the printer, and who was composing them. Then he discovered new things during the same days, so he had to change and add others, but the pagination was already established. And, and this is pretty visible in many of these pages. You see, for instance, that uh, in some of these pages, there is the numbers. It's only on the recto of the page. But at a certain point, you find pages who have no number. Uh, why? Because uh, these are recording observation made when the other pages and the following one were already being composed. But he had to insert in this position because they were consequential of these and, uh, and uh, pre premises of this one. But how could he do just to insert pages without putting numbers? So it's a, quite a funny book from this point of view, and even for many other reasons that is full of print mistakes, full of, of, of uh, mistakes of print, and is also uneven in the composition, and is, moreover, uh, f some of the copies that we have uh, are missing these images, because the engravings were printed later on, and he probably had printed the text, and he wanted to make circulate it earlier, and he didn't want to expect the time necessary to get the engravings printed, inserted in the text. So he made circulate some of these copies, and they exist copies of the Siderius Nuncius that have no engravings. And then he had to put these engravings, and the engravings were prepared while the, the text was printed. And uh, possibly they were didn't come so perfectly at the first attempt, so he had to change that and to make to check the engraver uh, transferring the drawing into engraving that was faithful to what he drew because Galileo himself was quite clever in drawing, so he made the first sketches. So these are many of the aspects, but also the front page is something that tell you. Uh, how complicated was the composition of this masterpiece. Siderius Nuncius was not that initial title, was astronomical Nuncius. And so we have galleys in which you have this title. Then you have another title again, finally decided Siderius Nuncius. Plus, Medicia Sidera is a of sign of dedication to the dynasty of the Medici in Florence. He wanted to become a, <clears throat> an employee of the Medici. For this reason, he made this dedication in a patronage style. And Medici Asidera is the final version, but he thought at the beginning that Cosmos II, the prince of Tuscany, would have liked to have a dedication to him himself. So what he did, he thought, because of that, that the best option would have been make Cosmica Sidera, Cos Cosmos the second Cosmos. This is a game that the Medici liked very much. 
And so he printed a, a number of pages with Cosmic Acidera. But when he received the answer from Florence, these pages were already printed. How could you manage, uh, given the fact that Cosmo said, no, I prefer the family dedication. I want Medici, Medici Acidera. He had to print on a strip uh, of paper Cosmic uh, Medici and glued on that. So many of the copies are these uh, second edition, let's call like that, in which fabricated uh, a solution for that. So the images, of course, are the crucial part of this work. That's where destined to create the imagination of something that nobody could see. Nobody had a telescope. So the only way of convincing those who were reading that what was described corresponded to a real image was to create these images. And this has been what is circulated more than the, all the other information around. Uh, a few of these copies, I don't think this one, this facsimile is coming from one of these copies, have uh, a piece of paper here, hmm? and you see this, the title Medici Sidera, mm -hmm. and uh, there is a piece of paper on Medici, covering Medici, and is printed on this strip of paper, Cosmic Sidera. Why Cosmic Asidera? Because he didn't have time to send to Florence the dedication and to wait for the answer of the great duke to whom he was dedicated, he was dedicating the Sideras Nunchos, if he accepted or not the dedication. So being pushed by, by Harry, he, he decided that he would have preferred Cosmic Asidera because the duke was Cosmos mm -hmm. and Cosmica was an evocation of his patronage. Mm -hmm. Uh, unfortunately, when the printing was already completed, or was completed at all, he received the answer from Florence, and the great duke took a different decision. He said that he preferred Medici, the family dedication, not the individual great duke. Mm. And what he could do, he, he had no time, because it was for the reason I explained before, was very much keen on having the book as, as printed as soon as possible to anticipate any possible competitor. So he, he made printed and he glued that on that. So you have many copies of these that are presenting this. And other copies have a different title, Astrological Nunchus. <laughs> and, and plus, you see that while he was going to the typography, to, to check the proofs, the galleys of this book, he was still at night looking at the stars and he was discovering new details, but the book was already printed. So if you go to page 18, after page 18, you see these two pages. No, no page numbers. No page numbers. What means this? Uh, and the page numbering starts again after these four pages following the earlier one, which means that it has been added at a certain point because they are containing the observation of Oreo and the beehive uh, cloud uh, that are so many more stars that were reported by Ptolemy and the other astronomer. So this, this is a, quite a mess, this book. And you have, have different uh, copies and you have uh, a sign of something which is written in, on, uh, in direct line while he was observing, was writing, he went to the to the uh, to the printer and he said I have to add these how can we make we have already printed this one and if I start again it will take two weeks more so so it, this is really a confused volume <laughs> but it's beautiful for that reason yes. because you see indirect what he was doing was he was trying to transfer into general audience and and you understand that the crucial point the crucial factor that being quick as possible to divulge this uh, news was. That all of the pages have numbers. Oh, of, of course, because these are transcribed, they're not facsimiles. Right, this is right. a facsimile, so it's giving a perfect mm. portrait of how yes. the book is. So uh, this is uh, a way of, of having a kind of camera on, on Galileo mm. working and at night looking at the heavens, during the day writing and going to the printer to see, to check galleys, or lots of mistakes in, in the typographical mistakes because even other sign of being in a great hurry. But this uh, was uh, uh, given to the printer uh, at the 1st of February of 1610 
And the, uh, you know, there are dated observation of the Jupiter satellites mm -hmm. that ends with the 31st of, uh, of uh, uh, the 28th of February, and the 13th of March, the book was out. So that's it. this is one month and 15 days from, from giving the first part to the printer and having the book out, which is, I think, a record in, in this kind, especially in a masterpiece like. <laughs> well, I wish I could write books that fast. <laughs> yeah, that would be very, very a dream for all of us. Was, it, was he paid anything? No, it was book? not paid. We don't know who paid for these. We know that there are 550 copies, which were quite a large, uh, quite a large uh, number for this kind of book mm -hmm. in Latin. It went out uh, out of stock immediately. I mean, in days, it was impossible to find it. What is funny is that he never started, thought of publishing it. We have trace. Uh, we have evidence in the correspondence that he was thinking of publishing that but it gave up and he thought that was possibly not necessary because it was just a report and he had not much to add although here you miss one of the crucial information that uh, Galileo would have provided a few weeks later which is the Venus uh, phases they are not here because they discovered Venus phases later on in the same year, and he would never publish that before the giving an announcement two years later in a different work on the sunspots and later on. So it's quite a crazy way, but you have to understand that this has been a revolution for astronomy, and there's also been a revolution, this book, for Galileo's life, private life. He was a professor in Padua, he was dreaming to go back to Florence with better conditions, economic and also image condition. And he used these dedicating to the great Duke of Tuscany to get that purpose uh, achieved. And he got that and he had to move and you had to negotiate with the Republic of Venice how to come out and to find a new accommodation in Florence to move his lab where he was building the telescopes from Padua to Florence and you two years took this moving for for Galileo and this is the explanation why it didn't produce much during 11 he had to go to Rome to defend his ideas against op op opponents and so on so it's funny but this book would have demanded a second better edition implemented with the novelties that he discovered later but it didn't happen it didn't happen I can't imagine uh, a writer like like the American Dan Brown, yeah, <laughs> printing a couple of hundred copies and then stopping at that yeah, point. Sure, sure. Um, yes, it was a bestseller, but it was a bestseller in Latin, and of course the fact that it was in Latin limited. Mm. But as I said before, the uh, idea of the content, the basic content of this book, spread enormously quickly. We have a letter which is a spectacular lecture from my point of view. One of the relatives of Galileo in Florence, he was still in Venice or in Padua, uh, wrote to him that he was at the market in Florence one day and suddenly a parcel was given to him and immediately all the people ran around him believing that the parcel was containing the telescope. That just I give you an idea of the popular reaction to the novelties and how the novelty spread. We are not about Copernicanism, system of the word, truth of the Bible description, it was something about a new object which will empower your sense and was something magic. Yeah. In front of us on a table in the old library was a replica telescope, which I was able to pick up and hold and look through. Even though it was a replica, I was able to see just how challenging it must have been for Galileo to make his revolutionary observations. Paolo, I've been told that this, that this is an exact replica of Galileo's telescope. It, it is a beautiful it's object. It's a beautiful I know, object, yeah. I mean, I know Italy is known for its artistry yeah. in general, uh, but it's, it's leather and it has beautiful gold. Deeds, um, yeah. I wonder whether you could talk a little bit about um, how this telescope was made and the, the difficulty 
and making this telescope. Yeah, sure. That is a crucial point. I mean, uh, Galileo is, is not the first one who assembled a convex at the con and a concave lens into a tube at the extremity of a tube. It was not the first one. Others had anticipated that even more than one year before in, in the Dutch countries, uh, telescopes were built. But their quality was so low that you could make very poor use of them for military purposes and no use at all for astronomical purposes. Uh, the invention of the telescope on the part of Galileo is the quality that he introduced. He changed this from a toy into a scientific instrument. And this was achieved by the fact that he was very clever with hands and that he had a lab in his private house in Padua, a lab in which he was fabricating instruments, mathematical instruments that they gave to his private students. And he used that opportunity to arrive at crafting lenses in a much better way to give in more uh, spherical, not hyperbolic, but spherical shape and to use the quality of the glass of Murano. You know, Venice Murano is famous for crystals. Mm -hmm. And assembling, uh, as a very trained experimental philosopher, uh, the distance and the quality of and understanding that much of the problems in for focusing on distant objects was, uh, was aberration. Because the uh, semispherical lens has different thickness. At the board is much uh, less thickness than at the center. And this creates a lot of aberration. And so you, you understood that if you put a diagram closing the, the entire lens and keeping only open the central part, you reduce enormously aberration and you create a quality of image enormously higher. So this is the invention of the telescope by Galileo. It's not the instrument itself, it's the fact of transforming it into a scientific instrument. And he later on also transformed it into a measurements instrument. He introduced the micrometer. The micrometer com combined with the telescope allowed him to measure the distance of the individual satellites of Jupiter from the central body. Was a crucial thing for him because this was instrumental to, to finding the way of creating a method for, for the quest of longitude at sea, which was mm. one of the dramatic points of his age. And he was looking forward, he spent a couple of years in tabulating, tabulating the periods of the Jupiter satellites in order to arrive at created tables to be used for that purpose. And uh, just uh, 50 years later, there were some astronomers who used the satellites of Jupiter to measure the speed of light, sure, which was sure. the first yeah. time that was known. First time. Yeah. I picked up the telescope and was pretty amazed at what I could see. If I um, look out of this telescope, the field of view or the, the, the amount that I can see is very small. It's like holding a dime at arm's length. Yeah. So, so it's just a, a tiny region of the sky that you can see with that. Was that a problem for Galileo? It was a big problem because you can imagine, you see on the Sidereus Nuncius this drawing of the full moon. But he couldn't ever see through the lenses of the telescope the full moon. He could see one third of the moon at a time. So can you imagine the mechanics of drawing these pictures? I mean, he had to look at, try to memorize what he saw, go to the piece of paper and, and trying to, to create in a disc, possibly uh, sketched before, one third. And then he go back again and try to focus on the second third and going back. So such a terrible, dif terribly difficult thing that you are impressed of the fact that these images are not so faithful, but are enormously faithful if you consider the situation in which they were produced. Now that's a form of, of memory drawing. My memory wife is drawing, a painter. Absolutely. My yeah. wife is a painter and she, she tells me that there's, there's something sure. that painters talk about called memory drawing. Sure where you, you see your object, your subject, and then you have to go somewhere else and, and remember it and draw yeah. it. So maybe exactly. Galileo was exactly one of the first that memory situation. drawers. But the, if the result is so impressive, although, as I said before, 
is not a picture of the actual moon, but this is also intended to emphasize details, like this central crater that is much smaller than that. But he wanted to convince readers that there were valleys <laughs> and there were mountains. So he was en enlarging intentionally these things, that you are impressed of this memory drawing capacity mm -hmm. and how much he had to stress to, 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 to achieve this kind of result. The, the other thing I notice when I look out of the telescope is that to my modern eye, the image is dark and I really have to squint for a long time to begin to see the detail. Uh, was that also a problem for Galileo? Uh, it's, a, it's a very typical uh, idea. I mean, first of all, uh, our eyes are not educated as well as Galileo's eyes because we are looking for high-definition images. We are not the brain educated to work and elaborating on what you see in a way to make it understandable and to give a meaning to what you're seeing. And certainly the situation in which was a man of the age of Galileo uh, was different and he was educated. But second thing, and possibly more important, he was prepared to accept the idea that the sky was made exactly as the atmosphere of the earth and that the celestial bodies were not so different from the one in which we live. So the fact that he was a Copernican person, that he was looking for evidence of the Copernican, the truth of the Copernican system helped a lot in making the brain add to what is so a meaning. And, and this is very important. But as you said, if you a person like me or you, I look, I, be, I have had the privilege of looking through the original telescope and really I can see anything. I can wonder how he could spot the Jupiter satellites. And, and, and so, as I said before, the, the eye was and the brain were interacting in a more clever way at this time because there was no high definition or similar thing. Second, he was looking for evidence. And the evidence of the Jupiter satellites was so strong because the, for the first time there was another body who had something surrounding him. And, and in, his image, in, in his imagination, that was the situation of the Earth around mm. the Sun. <laughs> right. So the Earth was no longer a unique body and having a moon around it. Um, uh, I, I understand that Galileo, uh, with his uh, pendulums, uh, found the law for pendulums. Um, one of my favorite Italian writers is, is Primo Levi, and uh, I, I love him as a writer because he's also a scientist. He was sure. a chemist. Did, did he, I think I heard him say something about Galileo or did he make any comment about Galileo? He quotes, Primo Levi quotes often Galileo was one of his icons and especially devoted one sonnet just to Desiderius Nuncius. The title of this sonnet, which is of the 50s of last century, is Desiderius Nuncius. And he defines, in one of the verse of this poem, he defines Galileo, I think a very clever definition, as a learned man with very gifted hands, which is a way of describing the synergy between the capacity, uh, theoretical capacity, philosophical capacity, and the st uh, analysis, capacity in analysis of complex problems, and the capacity at the same time of using hands to create tools to make that other quality much more performing. Yes, uh, uh, scientists today, uh, especially in physics, are, are rigidly divided into theorists yeah, and experimentalists. Sure. But, but Archimedes, Newton, Galileo, they were experimentalists and theorists. And theorists, yeah, especially Galileo, but there are other great scholars, great scientists of the time. Think of Johannes Kepler, that were a very gifted in, in uh, theoretical physics and very poor in, in applied <laughs> physics. Because uh, if you think that uh, Kepler had an optical knowledge uh, perfect to understand that it was very easy to build a telescope, but he never built a telescope. 
and Galileo was not so strong in geometrical optics, built it. So you see, this is was already there, the division between theoretical and applied physics. Well, maybe because Kepler had Brahe's observations and data, he didn't feel compelled to build the telescope. It is possible even that, of course, he had the data provide, but not through the telescope. Yes, and he right. was very envied to look at right. it. <laughs> um, when you when you look out of this telescope, uh, the the field of view is very small and it's quite dark. Uh, uh, was that a problem for Galileo? It was a problem because if you spot through the celestial bodies with one eye, first of all, is not two eyes, and 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 you look through, you see just a dark image. Uh, of course, during the night, uh, the dark image is contrasted by the brightness of the bodies that you are observing, especially the moon, of course. But uh, it was not a big problem because for looking at planets, because he could spot with a single uh, view uh, Jupiter and his satellites, but he couldn't spot the entire moon. When he was looking at the moon, he was looking at one third of the moon. So he had to make move the telescope to explore it. And plus, when he decided that he had to, he was compelled to create a drawing, because otherwise, how could I have explained to the general audience what he saw with words? wouldn't have worked. So he had to create an image. And to create an image, he had to spot at one third, memorize what he saw, go back to the piece of paper, try to sketch what he saw, then he going back and try to focus on, the, on one second third, going back again, and the, the same procedure for the third time. And this obviously was something that makes you so surprised that the final image in, printed in the Siderius Nunchus was not that bad at all. It was pretty giving the main details of what you see under 20 times enlargement pretty faithfully. I'll put this back. Our sincere thanks to Paolo Galuzzi, Roberto Ferrari, and all the very helpful staff at the Museo Galileo. It was a privilege to film there and to be able to document what made Galileo's work so revolutionary. As you may hear in Searching Part 3, neuroscientist Robert Desimone thinks his field is on the cusp of a major breakthrough because of all the new technology that has recently been delivered. And he compares neuroscience today to astronomy when the telescope was first invented. And philosopher Rebecca Goldstein says that we're waiting for the Galileo of neuroscience to have a chance of finally cracking the hard problem of consciousness. And as we ourselves say, the new laser interferometer gravitational wave observatory called LIGO, just like Galileo's telescopes four centuries earlier, may reveal an entirely new way of looking at the heavens, perhaps all the way back to just a few nanoseconds after the Big Bang. And thanks to you for listening. Until next time, this is Alan Lightman for Searching. <laughs>